Futurized goes beneath the trends, tracking the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. Join me, futurist Trun Arne Unheim, PhD author, investor, and serial entrepreneur, as I discuss the societal impact of deep tech, such as AI, blockchain, IoT, nanotech, quantum, robotics, and synthetic biology, and tackle topics such as entrepreneurship trends for the future of work. I'm a research scholar in global systemic risk, innovation, and policy at Stanford University. On Futurized, I interview smart people with a soul, founders, authors, executives, and other thought leaders, or even the occasional celebrity. Futurized is a bi-weekly show preparing you to think about how to deal with the next decade's disruption so you can succeed and thrive no matter what happens. Futurized, conversations that matter. If you're new to the show, seek particular topics or are looking for a great way to tell your friends about the show, we've got the episode categories. Those are at futurized.org slash episodes. I am the co-author of Augmented Lean, a human-centric framework for managing frontline operation and the author of Health Tech Rebooting Society's Software, Hardware and Mindset Future Tech, How to Capture Value from Disruptive Industry Trends, Pandemic Aftermath, How Coronavirus Changes Global Society, the Disruption Games, How to Thrive on Serial failure and of leadership from below how the internet generation redefines the workplace for an overview you can go to trondenheim.com slash books at this stage futurize is lucky enough to have several sponsors and to check them out go to futurized.org slash sponsors if you're interested in sponsoring the podcast or to get an overview of other services provided by me including how to book me for keynote speeches please go to futurize.org slash store we'll consider all brands that have demonstrably positive contributions to the future. Before you do anything else, make sure you are subscribed to our newsletter on futurist.org, where you can find hundreds of episodes of conversations that matter to the future. Please also leave a positive review on iTunes. Thanks so much. Emil, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Look, Emil, you're, you're an exciting person. You're a philosopher, a historian. Uh, you, you're working on the big questions, ethical implications, uh, existential risk in the widest sense. You're a writer, you're a thinker, you've been working with uh, a bunch of notable people and institutions, uh, Future of Life Institute, you've been with uh, briefly at Harvard University, uh, your degrees are in neuroscience from Brandeis, and uh, but you also spend time in Cambridge uh, at the uh, Caesar, uh, you know, Center for Existential Risk. You just defended your PhD thesis. Congratulations at the Thank Leibniz uh, Universität of Hanover. But really, you're also you're a writer. Um, you know, just very uh, affable writer. Uh, lots of publications. Uh, interesting stuff. And you're a musician. I was just listening to some of your older work, which is great. Repetition in order here by uh, Baobab, you know, mm-hmm. your uh, alter ego there. Uh, Emil, tell me how this all got together. And we'll, we'll get to existential risk. We'll tra- talk about all the controversy surrounding it, which you have just embedded yourself deeply in. Just you must enjoy controversy with a whole other question but i'm going to give it to you was that a fair characterization of some of the things you were up to yeah i think so yeah i mean in a past life i i uh you know was a was a musician um and yeah i i you know i toured for a bit uh but really for the past 
you know, decade and a half, my focus has been writing, in particular on existential threats to civilization and humanity. Uh, and then more recently, my uh, book project, uh, and the book is supposed to, to come out in just a few days, uh, has focused on the history of thinking about human extinction and the history of thinking about the ethical and evaluative implications of our extinction. Because I was working in this field you know, for many years, and it occurred to me that nobody had really done a historical examination of the evolution of these ideas. Where did they come from? You know, where did this notion of existential risk uh, arise from? What are the antecedents that, that led to it? So That's that got so me really curious in that. Yeah, yeah it, is, it is interesting because, and, and this goes to part of your critique, which uh, you know, has been part of this uh, controversy, right? Because certain uh, circles were, I, I, I guess, understood, perhaps not uh, for, for their own, uh, you know, by their own fault. But, you know, existential risk for a while has been kind of, uh, people might have thought that it was located in a philosophical debate uh, surrounding Oxford University. But, you know, in, in your book and in other sources, it transpires that it's a much wider concern, uh, which is important. Mm -hmm. So listen, um, there are so many ways that we could enter into this, but l let me just line up a couple of little questions and then I'm going to just give it to you to structure and, and, and tell us a little bit, uh, you know, how you would uh, characterize the situation. So we've talked a little bit about existential risk already. Um, what is the main controversy in, you know, in, in the debate right now? Is it, does it have to do with, Technology. There are a lot of fears out there. AI, right? Big, big, big fear. Um, does it have to do with, notably, like philosophy and, and ethics and, and those things, or is it a much wider uh, set of issues that is causing uh, these debates? And what are the key debates for you? And and why is it so important? Because you are very passionate about this, and and you know th these are obviously serious questions. But like you pointed out, in, uh, and you've been written writing about in your book, these are questions that many scholars have been asking for centuries, if not millennia. So wh why the relevance now? Yeah, so for me, the main problem, so far as, you know, I would argue the main problem with uh, this notion of existential risk, which is pretty historically new, right? So, you know, there were people who, you know, throughout the, the 20th century, really going back to, the middle of the 19th century, after the discovery of the second law of thermodynamics, uh, there were a number of people who were worried about human extinction. And the, you know, the idea of existential risk, though, was, is really intimately bound up with a particular normative futurology, a particular normative vision of what the future ought to look like. And this vision is transhumanism. And then also there was this totalist utilitarian component as well from pretty early on. Um, so I, I could go into to detail about that. I mean, basically it's, you know, existential risk was defined as any event that would prevent us from realizing a techno-utopian future. Um, and Can this you just, for, for people that yeah. may not fully understand or, or just even know who, who, who or what we're talking about, the the... That particular direction, the direction of thought that you're describing now, 
where does it originate and who are, I guess, its most vocal representatives today? Yeah, so transhumanism really was developed or introduced during the uh, 20th century by some leading eugenicists. So these were individuals uh, who belonged to the first wave of, of eugenics, which sort of extended all the way up until probably the 1970s or so. And Julian Huxley is a, is a primary figure. And so the idea was, for eugenicists, the goal was to perfect the human stock, uh, to perfect humanity, and also to prevent us from degenerating. So there, was a, there were a lot of concerns, particularly the, the very late 19th century, early 20th century, about human degeneration. Um, and going back even a couple centuries before that, one of the, the more influential theories of how racial groups emerged was that humanity itself began as uh, a population of white people. <laughs> And then certain groups degenerated, and that's how you get non-white races. We laugh, but these are these are serious matters. But you, we have to keep an upbeat tone about this. Uh, I I just want to uh, clarify a little bit. So, sure, y- you uh, you say that it originated in the twentieth century. Um, does it, for you, reside in one particular scientific subject, or is it a, a bunch of people? So there, I, I, I could just imagine, you know, how you write about this in your book, but certainly biologists were, were involved, mm-hmm. ph- philosophers certainly also, but, but also psychology was starting to really emerge as, as a science. And I, I know f- for a fact that there were some psychologists also that got into the debate, you know, investigating questions of uh, intelligence and, and, and other, or other things. What, mm-hmm. what, you know, how, how does this fit with, with science and scientific thinking? Yeah, I mean, psychology definitely played a non-trivial role in the, the emergence of eugenics, right? So psychologists, uh, especially eugenicists, who helped to develop the IQ test. Uh, and then, you know, the, the IQ test was uh, utilized in many cases to essentially uh, keep marginalized people sort of uh, relatively powerless. Um, right. I mean, t- there's an established line of thinking there that says, you know, many of these early tests, at least, were culturally specific. They were mm-hmm. asking for information uh, that is located, uh, you know, in certain cultures uh, so that that could have contributed to that. And there's, a, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. There, there are people from all different, you know, scientific backgrounds um, and non-scientific backgrounds as well who were part of the, the eugenics movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, like I mentioned, I mean, the, the main goal was just to like make humanity the best, uh, version of itself possible. Mm-hmm. And then transhumanism was this idea that, well, if we're going to, um, you, to use the, you know, methods of eugenics of selective breeding, maybe forced sterilization, but also just encouraging, you know, so-called geniuses to have more, uh, children to, to increase the, uh, frequency of their you know, uh, genetic traits within the human population. Why, why stop there? Why not try to transcend humanity entirely? Mm-hmm. So that was really the key idea with transhumanism. And initially when it was developed by uh, Julian Huxley, as well as others like J.B.S. Haldane and J.D. Bernal, um, the, the method was going to be something related to eugenics. And then it was really with the, ni- the 1970s, uh, with the emergence of this brand new field of scientific inquiry called genetic engineering, <laughs> as well as the, the sort of 
uh, um, anticipations that genetic engineering could, uh, could, could ultimately become extremely powerful. And there were sort of hints that, you know, maybe there's, there's some, some even more sophisticated kind of methods. Uh, we, we would call them synthetic biology now. Uh, or biotechnology or something. So the even more sophisticated methods that could enable us to radically modify ourselves, you know, either changing just these, these cells in our bodies uh, or perhaps the germline, in which case the modifications would be passed down to all future generations. And so it, the transhumanist vision of transcending humanity, when that was combined with this second wave of eugenics, uh, focus on these new methodologies that are emerging, associated with genetic engineering and so on. But Emil, That's where you uh, really get the... Yeah, I, I'm still struggling with the connection between what you're talking about now and the study and worry about existential risk. Because, you know, up until now, it sounds like a, by today's standards, for most people, a misguided line of thinking that devalues humanity as I see it as a whole, Mm -hmm. and, you know, prioritize the certain groups. But the overall study of existential risk, are you saying that the main thrust or one of the main thrusts of, of this field originated among thinkers who were heavily influenced by this tradition? Is that, is, is that kind of your main critique of, of this, uh, the contemporary situation? That's definitely part of it. Yeah. So uh, it, it was transhumanist who introduced this notion of existential risk. And the original way that it was defined in 2002 by Nick Bostrom, who's probably the most prominent transhumanist uh, of the 21st century so far, along with Ray Kurzweil, I would say. Um, so he was a transhumanist. He introduced this notion of existential risk as basically any event that's going to prevent us from creating this post-human utopian future in which we, become, we radically enhance ourselves to become immortal, to... Uh, uh, you know, we plug our brains into computers via brain-computer interfaces. Maybe we completely upload our minds uh, to computer hardware. And then we, you know, immediately attain some kind of digital immortality and we can radically enhance our, our cognitive uh, systems, the algorithm, uh, so-called, running on the wetware of our, of our brains. Um, and so ultimately, this, you know, in the process, we can abolish suffering. We can use, you know, advanced technologies to introduce radical abundance. So we end up in this post-scarcity world. So this, there was this utopian vision at the very heart of the notion of existential risk. And then it was augmented further uh, in 2003. So one year after Bostrom in, introduced the concept of existential risk, uh, in 2003, he published this other paper that, that combined this transhumanist vision with a utilitarian uh, perspective on um, the ethical aspects of the long-term future of humanity. And Can so we briefly just cover utilitarian sure. uh, methodology and thinking? Because, uh, you know, for many people, this is obvious, but ju just for others, uh, what is for you the, the key of utilitarianism as, as it is, uh, you know, manifested in, in this particular situation? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, utilitarian ha utilitarianism has a number of different interpretations. Um, the most relevant version of this ethical theory is totalist utilitarianism. Um, so this, is the, this combines a claim about what makes the universe good with this kind of precept uh, about what we ought to do. And what we ought to do is whatever makes the universe good. What makes the universe good? Well, the more total value it contains. So, you know, 
A different version, to, just to, to put this in contrast, a different version of utilitarianism would say, our aim is to maximize the total amount of values, let's say happiness, the total amount of happiness within the population of individuals who currently exist. Totally yeah, and that's what I think most people learn in philosophy class or the, the notion that even, even people who have studied a little bit of philosophy or, or, or went through like a year of philosophy at university or even just took a high school course or, or were reading the original thinkers, I think that's their common sense notion of what it means. But you, you're, you're saying these uh, 20th century thinkers actually took it much, much further into the f far future. How, how does that? How does that even start as an idea? And and yeah, when we yeah. and, and we have to talk about the far future. It's like it's yeah, such sure. a fascinating and I guess utopian concept, yeah. right? Because we're departing yeah. a little bit from science here, my assertion, and we're yeah. moving into visionary ideas, political projects. Uh, you know, certainly a lack of of true evidence, but nonetheless fa fascinating. Um, what is this new domain that 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 uh, Bostrom and others are are painting for us? Yeah, sure. So I think there are two key ideas. So one has to do with this totalist aspect, this totalist interpretation of utilitarianism. It's not just about maximizing the amount of happiness that exists among the actual people, uh, you know, among the people who currently exist. It's about increasing the total amount of value in the universe as a whole. And so one way to do this is to make everybody who currently exists happier. Another way is to create new happy people, right? So if you just increase the human population, then you'll increase the total amount of value that exists in the universe as a whole, assuming that on average, the, these new people who come into existence have a net positive amount of value. So even if they just have you know, a total of one unit of happiness, if you create you know, 100 trillion of, trillion of them, then you've got 100 trillion units of happiness. And that well, makes this is important. Power. This is an important distinction, though, because it seems to me, and because I've read some of these things too, that the the main thrust of these uh, thinkers is that they very, very soon start to obsess over the perfect human, because obviously, you, you know, the 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 contribution of those individuals towards, I guess, creating even more civilizations, even further astray in the you know in the in galaxies far far away, and you know, here we enter into kind of the uh, interesting domain of sci-fi. Uh, that just seems to be there uh, an obsession, even though, like you truly pointed out, just increasing, just keeping ex people alive that are, you know, worth more than one on the happiness scale, which is, you know, just more than uh, a little bit happier than than the rest, is in itself valuable. Mm -hmm. um, but in some of your writings, you you, you point out that. Uh, this thinking very rapidly, may I use the word degenerates, into this idea that the ex people who exist now are somehow not very valuable in the total picture. H how does that idea get started and what's wrong with it from your point of view? Because that seems very clear from your writings. You have a very, very strong position on this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that brings me to the second key point, which is that Totalist utilitarians in the past didn't have a particularly robust view of the bigness of the future, right? So there was just this kind of uh, a default myopia to how they were, you know, sort of thinking about it. So this goes back to like Henry Sidgwick uh, in the in the um, in the latter nineteenth century, uh, and then is really in the nineteen eighties 
that people started to think, wow, the future could be enormous. And if what matters is that we increase the total amount of value in the universe, not just right now, synchronically, but diachronically across this temporal dimension. So as many, you know, one way to, to maximize value is to um, increase the total number of people who exist right now. Another way is just to ensure that there are many, many generations in the future. Because then when you take this sideways view and you look at the timeline of cosmic history, if there are many, many generations, then that means there's going to be more total value in the universe. And so the reason this idea emerged in the, it became clear to philosophers who were sympathetic with totalist utilitarianism in the 1980s is that the 1970s is when this new field of scientific investigation called physical eschatology was born. And that's just the study of the evolution of the universe. Just that. It, yeah, just that. <laughs> and so, you know, including our solar system. So how long is Earth going to remain habitable? About another billion years. How, if we spread beyond Earth... And that's not enough. Well, I mean, so just that alone is, uh, is sufficient for a totalist utilitarian to say, wow, there could be an enormous number of people in the future. So the very first person to ever calculate how many people might exist in the future, um, so far as I know, was Carl Sagan, the cosmologist. Yep. In 1983, he suggested that if we survive for another 10 million years uh, and the human population remains stable and people live for, let's say, uh, uh, 100 years, there could be 500 trillion people in the future. To put that in contrast, there are 8 billion people right now and there's an estimated 117 billion people who have existed so far. So the future is way bigger than the past and way, way bigger than the present. Before we keep talking about the future, I just want you to comment a little bit on how conservative thinkers view this idea. Because Edmund Burke and, you know, the, the, the founding fathers of sort of the conservative movement, you know, arguably, they look back and they say, the reason we have value is that we understand and further some of the values that were valuable in the past mm -hmm. and that, you know, change is only good if it, uh, you know, can be interpreted as good with the whole history in mind. Mm -hmm. So it strikes me that this is a radically different way of thinking. This, this utopianism that you have described now is radically different from the idea that humanity is actually much more about the past and safeguarding the, those values. What you have described now is this enormously futuristic movement where value purely really resides in the future. Yeah, I, I think, you know, the... the or am I wrong about this? I mean, you, you've, you've been in these circles, you've talked to these people, you've worked with Ray Kurzweil, and, and I, I, I'm sure you've, you've met Bostrom and, and others. Are they really that extreme? that they're really not very concerned about the past? So I think the way that this notion of existential risk and this particular ethic, or I would say ideology of long-termism, was initially formulated, I think the focus really was on the, the future. Mm -hmm. You know, it was, you know, transhumanism is a future-oriented uh, perspective. The, the kind of totalist, the, the emphasis of the, the totalist utilitarianism that these people embraced or at least argued for in, in some published papers is very future oriented. 
And more recently, I think some of the long-termists have started to incorporate these alternative views to help further buttress their view, to, to say, well, you don't really need to be a totalist utilitarianism or someone who's obsessed with the, you know, the vastitude of our cosmic future. Actually, you can just be more concerned with like this, this notion that we have a sort of cura, a, a curatorial duty to uh, pass on the inheritance from past generations to the next generation. Hmm. And there's a, there's a kind of moral duty to, to this, ensuring that we are not the link in the chain that breaks. <laughs> so know? is that where the existential risk part comes in? That the uh, concern here becomes, could something break this chain? Could we go extinct? And if so, whatever the extinct means, but you know, you, we haven't talked about that so much, but in, in the Bostrom vernacular, it's some sort of catastrophic event that if it doesn't even fully destroy all living humans, it at least mm -hmm. puts us on a negative trajectory where we risk uh, losing a, a majority of, of our people and potential and, and perhaps, you know, you know forever are, are sort of decimated in the, in this from this departure that we, we should proliferate into the trillions and trillions. Yeah, I think that's that's part of it. Um, I mean, Edmund Burke himself was focused on. I mean, he introduced this notion that uh, of the partnership of the generations. You know, society is a partnership of between the current generations, past generations looking behind us, and then future generations uh, looking in front of us. And his real focus was on society. <laughs> you know, and it, it, it you know the, for us to. Uh, catastrophically terminate uh, or destroy this partnership. Uh, and in doing so, you know, uh, um, lose the inheritance that has been uh, bequeathed to us from, you know, past generations. We don't need to go extinct. You know, there could just be some violent revolution like the French Revolution that destroys our society. But Emil, surely that is kind of every mainstream thinker or indeed every common uh, person you know, we'll, we'll generally have the idea that it's a good thing that humanity exists, or am I wrong? So this is not really original per se. It is the consequences of this thinking when you draw it into the extreme that that, that becomes concerning, or, or am I wrong? Is the, the foundation of this thinking that humanity exists and should continue to exist? Are you, are you even questioning that notion? So interestingly, um, it was the case that uh, his, you know, his, the, with respect to the history of thinking about questions like should humanity continue to exist, um, th these were first addressed, I think, really for the, for the first time systematically in the second half of the 19th century. And I mentioned Henry Sidgwick. He's one individual who explicitly addressed these questions. But pretty much at the exact same time, in the 1870s, there was a flurry of thinkers based in Germany, where I am, who held a diametrically opposed view. And they argued that being extinct would be better than continuing to exist. So it's, and this tradition of, you know, I, I call this view uh, pro-extinctionism. Uh, this tradition of pro-extinctionism has um, maintained uh, a fairly consistent number of notable people who have been advocates 
for it. <laughs> you know, throughout the 20th century, uh, there were a number of, of philosophical pessimists who held the exact same view that you know being extinct would be better. Um, and yeah, all the way up and up to the uh, present, uh, David Benatar is is one of the more notable uh, figures. He, he's he, he himself holds some very questionable views on all sorts of other things as well. Uh, but he's a pro-extinctionist and thinks that actually the Bostrom and the other long-termists are completely wrong, and the better thing would be for us to uh, cease to, to exist. You know, something that strikes me here, thinking about these things, when you uh, talk about them this way, is that mitigation of risks becomes actually really controversial, which is somewhat surprising to the plain politician who might look at these things and say, well, you know, day to day, what are we going to do about this? Or enterprise risk people who are thinking, you know, does this pose a risk to my great and thriving business in the short term or or even, you know, in the term of my employment or, you know, does it, is it going to affect me as a chief risk officer or, you know, are we resilient? But w- what we're talking about here now suddenly is not, is not mitigating certain risks that everyone agrees about. It, it, suddenly everything's up for grabs. Should we even exist? If we want to further that existence, it doesn't seem very clear to me exactly what one might want to do here to mitigate for something, you you know, utopias that we perhaps don't even agree about. Because, you know, so far it seems, you know, you, you sort of said they want to further happiness. Mm-hmm. But that is a very abstract notion. And... Mm-hmm. So tell me then how these long-termists view uh, mitigation. What is mitigation to them? Yeah, so, I mean, great questions. Um, Maybe one thing that's useful to uh, start with is to tie together some loose ends of some of the the, uh, really interesting issues that you've brought up. For the long-termists, because... Given the insights of contemporary physical eschatology about how long we could exist into the future, about how large the the universe is, and consequently how many future people there could be, especially if we become digital beings in the future, um, they're going to argue that uh, mitigating existential risk is extremely important. So there is a discontinuity in the badness of a catastrophe that kills everybody on Earth. So you could imagine that, uh, imagine some uh, disaster like a global pandemic or a thermonuclear conflict. So as the number of casualties, as the number of deaths increase, the badness of the situation increases, let's just say, in proportion, in a linear fashion. Once you get to 100% of humanity dying off, though, then the badness of the situation completely skyrockets. Because it's at that point that you foreclose permanently the realization of all future uh, value, which again could be absolutely enormous. There could be 10 to the 58, a one followed by 58 zeros, uh, d- digital beings that exist in the future. If they are on average happy, that's an enormous amount of value in the future that we'd lose. So the badness increases as you get to 50% of humanity dying off, 99% of humanity dying off continues to increase, and then 100%, the badness is just orders of magnitude worse. So it's qualitatively different. Uh, and so this means that mitigating existential risk is really, really important. It takes precedent, or at least it should, from a moral perspective, take precedent over all other uh, catastrophes that do not threaten our extinction. 
this would include like like uh, you know maybe climate change if it's not going to uh, threaten the yeah. Well, what is this of, thing that one hears yep. that climate change is not an existential risk? You know, is that just like an Earth centric view? And you know, Earth, what's Earth anyway in a cosmic age? Basically, you know, it's our vessel now. It's sort of our container for now, but we will vastly, uh, you know, expand beyond this sad state of territorial confinement into yeah. the, you know, the, the beauty of, of open space. And so, so space policy here and space expansion and technology would seem uh, becomes really, really important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, space expansionists would refer to Earth as uh, the cradle of humanity. You know, so this is where we're born. We sort of grew up. But once we matured to, uh, you know, beyond our adolescence, which maybe we're right now in our reckless um, adolescence where we're taking, you know, foolish risks and so on. But once we mature beyond that, um, we'll eventually spread into space. As soon as we spread into space, the probability of some kind of catastrophe, existential catastrophe that would um, erase all of that future value before we've had a chance to draw it uh, will be greatly reduced. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, uh, and, but with respect to climate change, I think the idea is that if you look at the scientific literature, uh, it's true that most climatologists don't think that climate change is going to cause our extinction. Some people are going to uh, persist. You know, pr- who, you know, it's, it's going to be the wealthy people <laughs> you know, who are most likely to, to be able to, to pull through if, if climate change becomes really catastrophic, which it seems like it's going to be. Um, the global south is going to suffer, you know, tremendously. But ultimately, you know, the effects of all the carbon dioxide that we're, we're pumping into the atmosphere right now will persist for, you know, roughly 10,000 years. So that's a longer period of time than civilization has existed so far. Civilization has been around for like 6,000 years or so. Um, so it's going to be really, really bad, but it's not going to cause our extinction. And when you zoom out and you take a, a genuinely cosmic view, you know, the, the 10,000 years is just almost nothing compared to the 10 to the 40 years that we could exist into the future. Maybe we could actually exist uh, much further than that, 10 to the 100 years. So these are actual estimates. You know, 10 to the 40 years is when protons are expected to decay. If they decay, we don't know. 10 to the 100 years, that's when the heat death of the universe occurs. When the universe as a whole sinks into this frozen state of thermodynamic equilibrium, and you know, information processing becomes uh, well. Depending on which cosmologist you ask, it becomes you know completely impossible. So, that's Emil, just I'm just a- curious what what is your preferred time frame? Because you 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 you're sort of a little ironically characterizing the the, the gazillions of, of of years of perspective from a cosmologist or or a long termist of that. you know, of that uh, ilk. The uh, U.S. sort of uh, original population here, I talked about the seven-generation principle. Uh, uh, There's a declaration, there are are people now, you know, wanting to resurrect the the tradition of of thinking beyond one generation and -hmm. thinking more in terms of five to seven generations. Meanwhile, Real politics, as of now, is concerned with a budget year, perhaps with a four-year elected term, and you know, some in some parliaments with an eight-year elected term. Mm-hmm. How, how do you reconcile all that? The fact that most decisions are taken 
with less than a year or, you know, stock market, uh, you know, or like TikTok instantaneousness in mind, mm-hmm. um, then there's this ambition to go back to, you know, Aboriginal principles, basically, of, of mm-hmm. you know, earthly cycles and, you know, who is sort of the oldest elder that, you know, you'd, you'd be expected to uh, preserve and, and, you know, your children's children's children, you know, who, 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 you know, so, so that, that's one frame of mind, but then these, uh, 10 to the 58 years is a very, very different story. And I'm sure there's a lot in between there. What is an appropriate time frame to consider existential risk? <laughs> yeah, it's a great question. Um, one thing to say is you're totally right that short-termism, myopia, is built into a lot of our institutions, right? Quarterly reports and, like you said, you know, four-year, six-year, maybe eight-year election cycles. All of that's really near-term. And um, this kind of myopia is profoundly dangerous because some of the alterations we're making to Earth will last for an extremely long amount of time. Some of them will be permanent. So, you know, for example, the, there, there's some uh, biologists and ecologists who have argued that um, our greatest legacy from this century is biodiversity loss. And, you know, ultimately, if, you know, let's say we survive for another, uh, you know, 10,000 years or so, uh, and then we die out. And there's an alien civilization that uh, uh, arrives on Earth, and they've got their own geologists, and they start to dig through this stratigraphic uh, record. They're going to notice that there was some kind of, you know, major mass extinction event in the 21st century. <laughs> you know, they're also going to notice that there's this really thin layer of artificial radionuclides, uh, which which we would date to the 1950s when there are all these, you know, thermonuclear uh, tests all around the the, the planet. Um, but th- you know, they're going to notice that you know biodiversity loss is significantly de- decreased, and a lot of the species we're losing. Um, I mean, virtually all the species we, we lose uh, are gone forever. And the only reason I say virtually all is maybe we can, you, you know, maybe there are resurrection biologists. That's an actual field. We'll be able to, to bring yeah, some of Yeah, to your point to with synthetic biology, y- y- yep. you know, species by species or, or perhaps in some automated, perhaps, fashion, you know, one could use AI and other methods to, to start to regenerate species at scale. Um, however... This brings me to, uh, just to add to this question that I feel like we're, you're still answering. Mm-hmm. Democracy is actually part of the problem here, isn't it? Because democracy in itself was built around these institutions that you speak about and this notion of, you know, creating laws that are, you know, where, where we do care about just the generation uh, that is basically over 18 and until they could care less about voting, which I don't know at what what point that is. And that obviously is extending because people are living longer. But that is a fairly myopic view on decision making, Mm -hmm. given that there is, well, you know, if you think seven generations, how are you going to make all those vote in some sense? Um, Jefferson talked about, you know, we need a new constitution every generation, but what's the generation, you know, and and who gets to vote and, and, and when? And then just to add to the complexity, these long-termists, what do they think about legitimate uh, voting rights and, you know, who gets to decide all these things? Because, you know, at the heart of it, it's not just philosophy and ethics, it's who 
gets to click on the voting button, if, if we even believe that voting is, you know, is, is interesting in this, in this respect. What, what are your thoughts on that, the political reality of, of X-Risk? Yeah, so I agree that democracy is not ideal when it comes to planning for the, the further future. Um, that said, I'm not willing to compromise on democracy. I mean, it is an absolutely terrible form of government. Yeah, but, but, but to be clear, I'm not happen. saying democracy is horrible. I'm saying there seems to be a natural consequence of all of this long-termist, but even this seven-generation thinking that democracy is very myopic. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely agree. I, I don't have a good solution to this problem. Um, you know, I, I know there have been... I mean, this is a topic that scholars have been discussing and i haven't really kept up with the literature on it um but i mean the, the could you conceivably preserve votes of past and dead people and fix certain votes that you say we're going to vote now and then we're going to vote in 100 years and we're going to take the average of the votes over 30 50 100 give it a thousand years and then at some point, we're going to have to, you know, if pushed, we'll make a decision, but not based on current politicians or people with, uh, you know, over 18. We're going to make an intergenerational vote. Has, have these ideas been explored? I'm just curious. Do you know of, of any such thing? I'm not really sure, to, to be honest. But, I mean, what strikes me is what you really want is future generations having the opportunity to vote, right? Not just like the, the past uh, generations. No, vote I, I'm actually politics. saying I'd be really curious to hear what someone in the 17th century would vote on something that's easily enough understood. Like, you know, here's humanity. Here's the situation right now. Like, if you yeah. could beam yourself back to the 17th century, wouldn't you be interested in what a intellectual person, or or even any any person, thought about what's going on now? What you know? What literally would they say? Yes, no, don't know. <laughs> uh, to, you know, to any given issue of the day. Yeah, I have no idea. I mean, surely it would be very interesting to know. I'm not sure people, you know, from a couple centuries ago would have any good insight about what ought to be the case. <laughs> you know, I mean, the, in fact, I think this is part of the problem with the long-termist view is that they, they uh, I mean, there's a lot to say about this because some of them have addressed this issue. But the, you know, our capacity to anticipate what the future will look like, what values future generations will have, um, what they're going to want out of their own future, is it may be as completely unpredictable to us and alien as, you know, if you go back and you talk to somebody from the Enlightenment and, you know, you, you ask them certain questions about, uh, you know, the, the way uh, our society is structured with respect to, let's say, men and women. Right, like in the past, it was very there were very sexist societies, and so they might look at us and go like, "Wow, it's just a, a complete, um, you know, a completely different paradigm of ethical values and you know societal uh, mores." That you know, so yeah, it would be interesting, but I certainly wouldn't want them to be able to dictate what the present looks like. And in that same respect. Uh, I would worry about us dictating what the future might look like too much. So I think, you know, keep, keeping keeping options open, which is something that long-termists uh, discuss. That is, 
an idea that I uh, think is really important because it, it provides future generations the latitude to determine for themselves what, what they want the world to look like, what they want their own future to, to be um, without us imposing you know, our own values on them. Emil, let me ask you one last sort of big, big question. If mm-hmm. you put your own futurist hat on, what will or is, what, what are some trajectories, some scenarios that you think seem plausible in terms of the next decade, the next century? I don't know. Pick your time frame that you care about, that you think it's possible to reason about given the, your knowledge, our knowledge, you know, the, the knowledge base essentially. Or, or, or perhaps just based on on visionary ideas. I don't. I don't know. I'm just curious. What is sort of when you look at your reality and the data and everything that you 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 looked in the past. You obviously living in the present, like all of us, and you're mm-hmm. looking at these long termists, and you, you know you're criticizing some of their perspectives. If I want to challenge you on this, what what, what would your future predictions be? So I think consistent with what I was um, trying to argue um, <laughs> a little bit um, uh, could, could have articulated the, the idea a bit better, but I really don't know. I think the climate science is quite robust and consequently we should expect with a high degree of certainty the future to be pretty devastating in many ways. You know, the global south in particular is going to be very hard hit by climate change. Sea levels are going to rise. Cities like Miami are going to, you know, kind of disappear, as well as island nations like the Maldives and, you know, the various others. They'll disappear. Uh, and then you've got all of the various consequences of political instability, social upheaval, you know, mass migrations, you know, more than a billion people are predicted to be displaced, uh, I believe, by the end of of the century. I believe that's the the, uh, timeline. So I I think it is entirely possible that there's some very clever young person, uh, maybe already born, who will devise some technology that is very efficient, energy efficient, that can be used at scale, and can uh, extract carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere to reverse all of the the harm that we've caused uh, to reverse this trend of increasing atmospheric carbon dioxide concentrations over the past uh, couple of centuries. And as a result, you know, it may be the case that the worst predictions of climate change, uh, including entering a future state that some climate sci- scientists have called the hothouse earth state, which is just going to be very hard to live in. It's going to be very unpleasant. And even if you're in the global north and you're wealthy, it's still going to be psychologically devastating because you're going to have to be reading these headlines every day about, you know, more millions of people being displaced, millions of people dying, uh, awful deaths as a result of extreme weather and so on. So it's entirely possible that all of that may be avoided. But we shouldn't count on that. (laughs) You know, maybe this technology will be uh, invented, but maybe it won't. And so I think one thing I feel fairly certain about is that the future is just going to be chaotic and uh, our world is going to unravel in ways that are completely unprecedented in all of human civilization so far. That I feel very confident about. 
So, so I mean, Neil, that, that makes you well. Exactly, that was what I was going to ask you about because yeah. the techno modernist manifesto, this document that some people came up with a few years mm-hmm. ago, right? It it sort of says innovation will solve it all. And if you look at sort of the economist answer to all of this, is also mm-hmm. generally, you know, value will be created, and what we call problems now, fifty years from now the economy will be so huge that we'll just throw some money at it and some clever university, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, research team will come up with that technology you were just talking about. Uh, Mm -hmm. You seem to sort of leave that door open, but you're saying it's wrong to gamble on it. What what does that lead to? Does that lead us in degrowth or does it lead into further expansion and, but without the certainty of the techno-modernist? I think degrowth is the, is the, surest way to avert the worst possible aspects. Why? Because it gives us more time? Um, so I, I would say I'm not super familiar with the, the degrowth literature. I mean, I, I know there's a, you know, a, a huge, already huge and burgeoning sort of literature, you know, people writing about this, this issue. And I just haven't had time with all the other stuff I've been working on to really become deeply conversant with it. Um, but my, I mean, my so my my kind of sophomoric uh, understanding is that I mean, degrowth is is just a sure way to you know we need to stop using fossil fuels. Um, this this notion that economic growth is the solution is is just really potentially dangerous. Um, and yeah, again, from an eco modernist uh, with respect to the eco modernist modernist claim. Um, it could very well be the case that these technologies save us. But also, I mean, if you look historically, um, you know, in the late 1960s, early 1970s, a lot of people were super worried about overpopulation. And there were predictions that in the 1970s and 1980s, there'd be, you know, tens of millions of people who would perish as a result of famine. So this was, this was the um, revival of Malthusianism, so neo-Malthusianism. And claim is just, you know, the human population is growing at something like uh, a geometrical rate, food sources are growing at arithmetical rate, and consequently you have this divergence, and that's going to result in catastrophe. What saved us was the Green Revolution, right? It was just this, this, these new technologies that enabled us to, to increase um, crop yield. But, so on the one hand, yes, we avoided a Malthusian catastrophe, but on the other hand, I mean, the green, green Revolution has, in many ways, exacerbated the environmental predicament. You know, well, and also the invention or the, the 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 use of fertilizer, right, and and, and other things that just drastically increased yeah. agricultural production, which is tied to the industrial revolution, actually, or the agro uh, part, you know, the agricultural part of it. So, but if the techno modernist manifesto is too optimistic, is also the techno utopian? Uh, manifesto or whatever the long-termists, you know, would, would call it, is that also necessarily then wrong-headed or, or could there be still a formulation of utopia that you might want to believe in or that people should potentially believe in? I mean, is the, is the approach of looking for utopia uh, the wrong approach? I think so. I mean, in general, utopian visions, I think, are dangerous. You know, so, I mean, this, this brings us kind of full circle with some of the, the, the issues we were talking about before. Um, on the long-termist or, you know, I would say the, the task realist 
you know, the T stands for transhumanism, the L at the end stands for long-termism. It's just this bundle of ideologies um, that, you know, where transhumanism is really the backbone and long-termism is, I've described as the galaxy brain atop that sort of binds together all sorts of themes, major themes of all these different ideologies. So the utopian um, vision, according to the Tescreel bundle of ideologies, uh, you know, it's, it, uh, uh, it imagines this future in which we become post-humans, radically enhanced post-humans uh, who are, you know, ultimately able to live indefinitely long lifespans also, there is the space expansionist component. So we spread into the cosmos and we create astronomical amounts of value by you know, bringing into existence this 10 to the 58 digital people in the future. And the, the, you, so there are two aspects of, of utopianism that I, I think are dangerous. One is that if you're talking about utopia, what is off the table uh, when it comes to ensuring that this utopian world comes into existence. So if the me if the ends sometimes justify the means and the ends are a literal utopia with astronomical amounts of value, immortality and so on, then what what exactly is off limits for realizing this future? And so if you look throughout history, there have been all sorts of utopian movements that became violent because basically there was somebody who was standing in the way uh, standing in between the movement and utopia. Well, and exactly, thought, because the ends start to justify the means here. Because what yeah. I'm reading as a subtext in some of this is that mm -hmm. it's not just that uh, these utopias are about creating mass maximum value, but there is an implicit assumption that certain people, the smarter people, are mm -hmm. capable of appreciating happiness deeper and thus should be allowed to explore this interest you know like today you know they might be interested in you know classic cars or wine or whatnot but in the future they will have these enormously deep hobbies and they will be the poets of the future and musicians and whatnot and for that reason you know we cannot kill off the potential to have a hundred million mozarts walking around and, yeah. <laughs> and that would be of enormous value and it would create all these like there, there's a subtext here that we need to grow a stock of people that become Mozarts in every domain. And if we cannot do that, and, and anyone that stops that process is a Luddite, you know, or, or, or is a morally repugnant person because happiness cannot now be maximized. Yeah, I would say that there is a strain of elitism and classism throughout the Tesquiel bundle. Uh, you find it in the writings of Nick Bostrom, for example, you know, who was a co-founder of the long-termist ideology, and again, a, an early transhumanist, a very prominent transhumanist. Um, and so, you know, one example is a paper he uh, titled "Why I Want to Become Posthuman When I Grow Up." He imagines what it would be like to become posthuman, and the way he describes is, is uh, in the early stages of becoming a post-human being, you start to find that rather than uh, enjoying things like hanging out at the bar, watching sports with your friends, drinking beer, instead you pick up the saxophone and you start to learn some jazz. 
And, you know, maybe then you, you find reading philosophy to be more fulfilling than just, you know, uh, it's funny when you describe this. I've read that article too, and it strikes me that, you know, <laughs> I, I do all these things now and I'm not particularly bright or enlightened or I'm not, you know, I don't know. Uh, this can be done already. You know, what, what is also, this assumption that we need 100,000 years to evolve into the state of enjoying the saxophone or, or guitar, in my case? Well, it's, it, there's, there's an underlying assumption that, you know, jazz is more sophisticated than sports, that, you know, um, uh, reading philosophy and contemplating the perennial questions of the philosophical tradition uh, is, is more, uh, is of higher value than, you know, just hanging out with your buddies and, and drinking beer. I mean, we're and that assumption up, itself. We're coming up on the hour. I just want to draw it full circle with you. And I want to challenge yep. you because you were drawn to all these ideas yourself. You have worked yep. with some of these people. And, you know, even if we today, you know, we're, we're, it manifests in Bostrom, uh, you know, mm-hmm. and, and perhaps in Ray Kurzweil. These are people with whom you have had great affinity in the past. Mm-hmm. What do you think drew you to them and going forward, do you not understand how young people, particularly, are drawn to such ideas, realizing that you were once someone who was drawn? It's fascinating. You, you, you know, yeah. there, there are thinkers, they have these ideas, you get in their universe, and, and you certainly have a framework to understand some things that you've been jostling with. Yeah. It's fascinating, though, even if it's wrong or part I completely wrong. agree. I completely agree. Um, and I would say that I can completely understand why young people would be enamored or at least intrigued by this particular future logical vision. Because um, as you note, I mean, I myself was once a young person who also found th- this vision. I'm not saying quite- you're not young. I was just pointing out that we have all, <laughs> we have both of us been younger. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I, I did find it appealing. And I think part of it, the appeal was that I had lost my faith in traditional religion. And transhumanism, really from the start, was designed to be a secular replacement for Christianity. You know, so it checks a lot of the same boxes. There's a promise of immortality. There's a sense of meaning and purpose. Because if you're transhumanist, you're working for this project you're, you're you're trying to contribute to this project which is much which is much greater than yourself so it is you a know, religion then in your view I think it is very similar to a religion and I, I I would just want to add that it's facile to describe something as religion and then dismiss it right I mean this this happens all the time. Oh, communism is religion, conservatism yeah, is religion. Yeah, I, I meant it in, 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 yeah. in more of a structural sense, as kind of a but, social science sociologist's description of a social movement that has, right, not all social movements are religious, but, but many are at the core or at least have elements. And you're saying transhumanism has a fairly strong element of communitaristic values, but also, like you said, it fits other boxes in terms of ritual rituals yeah. and answers to the future of life and, and uh, individual choice and uh, trajectories that one should follow and, and, and a lot of things. Exactly, yeah. In a deeper sense, I, I think it's very, very similar to religion. It even has its own version of resurrection, right? So if you and I don't live long enough to live forever, 
uh, as Rick Kurzweil says, then we could, all, we could sign up with a company called Alcor, based in California, to have our bodies cryogenized. So that when the technology uh, is developed at some point in the future to uh, unfreeze our bodies, resurrect us, or maybe not just to, scan... Not, yeah. not to be uh, uh, sort of weird or anything, but if you only could freeze one body part for economic reasons, which ones would you freeze? Your brain? I mean, I, I guess brain... Your hand? But <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to go further down the body. But, you know, uh, what is the essence of uh, like, let's just say you cannot freeze all of like, wh what do you think? Where is the essence? What would you want to wake up to uh, in 100 years from now and have yeah. resurrected? I mean, Alcor provides the option freeze of just the, the neck and head yeah. as well. But I, I think that's just um, misunderstands the embodiment of intelligence. You know, we're not just a, uh, a central nervous system. You know, we're a whole peripheral nervous system. So if you get rid of the body, then uh, I'm, not, I'm not even sure what, if it would be possible to scan that brain, simulate it or emulate it on a computer, and then bring that person back to existence if they don't have, if, if you're not scanning the entire body. So right. anyways, I mean, most I, people are pretty yeah. tactile, right? So you would, if, you, if, you're, if you think that your body has anything to do with your happiness, mm -hmm. then it would seem to be the wrong move to just freeze your head. Even more, I, I just think that that's, um, you know, it's, it's almost the same as just uh, freezing a tiny part, a tiny section of your neocortex, and then expecting to get the whole person out of that. <laughs> you know, you really need the entire nervous system, which includes the central nervous system, your brain stem, your uh, brain that's in between your ears, but also your peripheral nervous system, all of the nerves that extend throughout your body. You probably also need, um, you know, most cells in our body are microbes, <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, this microbiome also has a part to play in the uh, broad internal milieu, as, as some biologists have called it, the, the, uh, uh, the, the internal environment of our bodies. So without all of that, it's not clear that you, to me that you would get any of the, the individual. So this notion of just scanning the, the head and the neck seems fundamentally problematic to me. If it's even the case that freezing an entire body and then scanning that entire body could bring the person back to, uh, into existence in the first place, which I'm very skeptical about. These are massive questions. I'm, I'm going to ask you this. Is there any chance we could uh, continue this? Because I think an hour is probably enough for now. But uh, there are so many things I want to I wanna ask you and further explore. This was a great, great start. And thank you for coming on. Yeah, th this is absolutely fantastic. And really, we've only scratched the surface because th there's so many fascinating, complicated, interesting topics to discuss. But I, I really uh, enjoyed this conversation. So th thanks so much for having me on. Thank you so much. Thanks. You have just listened to another episode of the Futurized podcast with me, Trondarne Unheim, futurist, scholar, and author. If you are interested in my products or services, feel free to check out futurized.org slash store, where you can book a keynote speech, become a sponsor or partner, request a podcast swap, or buy a few of my books, such as Augmented Lean, Health Tech, Future Tech, Pandemic Aftermath, Disruption Games, or Leadership From Below. 
If you're interested in any or all of my projects, check out my website, trondundheim.com, which has links to other podcasts as well as my public appearances. Thank you. Please share this show with those you care about. To find us on social media is easy. We are Futurized on LinkedIn and YouTube and Futurized 2 on Instagram and Twitter. See you next time. Futurized, conversations that matter.